You are listening to the Enormo Cast. If you zip over to Black Diamond's website right now, you will be confronted by cutting-edge ski gear up the wazoo. And though you might like snow in your wazoo, this is a damn climbing podcast. So guess what I found buried in there like a little cache of squirrel nuts waiting for the spring thaw? Brand new C4 Camelots. Yeah, that's right, folks. BD didn't stop with the ultralights. They went back and redesigned the old standby C4 Camelot to be 10% lighter, sport bigger, better triggers, and the 4, 5, and 6 finally have a trigger keeper, so you can rack them slim down to the closed position, but deploy them with nervous rodent speed when the going gets wide. The climber engineers at BD can't stop, won't stop making the best better for us crack freaks. Check out the new C4s, and if you must, some rad ski gear at blackdiamondequipment.com, or better yet, your favorite local shop. Hey, what's up? It's your toes talking here. That's a nice alpine climb you got there. I'd hate to see something happen to it. Like when we get cold. Life gets pretty miserable, eh, hotshot? Instead of a ballerina up there, you feel like a walrus. Not a svelte walrus who swims all day, but one of them big ones who lets seagulls crap on them. And if we ever do warm up again, well, get ready to howl like a banshee. And not a cool banshee that scares everybody, but one of them banshees the other banshees make fun of for sounding stupid. So get with it, buddy, and get some sick mountain boots from Sportiva. That's right, Italian-made. So high-tech they're like, what? Oh, we gotta go? All right, just listen to your toes and check out all of Sportiva's ice climbing and big mountain boots at Sportiva.com or your local shop. And tell them your toes sent ya. Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? Are you playing here? We're doing the uh, Enormo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, big house. place. That's out. not a town. That's a big nice. place. You sold it out. I'll say, you really should. The hell are you doing? I couldn't sleep. I'm checking the ropes. There was a freight end on Europe, and I'm cutting it out. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment with support from Maxim Ropes and the fine folks at La Sportiva. And don't forget our charter sponsor, Bonfire Coffee. Go to bonfirecoffee.com and enter Enorma at checkout for a discount on great coffee and to support the Enorma cast. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the Enormacast. This is your host, Chris Kalous. It is January 25th, 2019, about 11 o'clock at night here in Colorado. And this is episode 168 of the Enormacast, a conversation with climber, guide, father, New Hampshireite, New Hampshireian, Peter Doucette. Yeah, here's one for the Northeasterners. A little love for the East Coast. This has actually been in the archive for some time. Um, I actually got it in North Conway uh, almost a year ago. I decided to spread out the Northeast love, and plus it was very ice climby, so kind of shelved it for the summer, and then it got away from me. But still a great interview, still pertinent. In 2019, it's, it's time to hear from Peter. So I hope you guys listened to the last episode, the TAPS episode, part two. A lot of fun over there, getting a lot of good feedback mostly. But I do have to issue an apology. Has the Enormacast ever issued an apology before? I don't know. I can't remember 90% of these things. Some of you guys may remember an apology at some point. But this apology goes out to Mr. Joe Brown, infamous UK climber. I believe he still lives in Wales. And that... That is what the apology is about, is that we declared Mr. Joe Brown dead in that TAPS podcast, number 167. And of course, to paraphrase Mark Twain, the reports of Joe Brown's death were exaggerated. He was still alive when we said that. As far as I know, he's still alive right now. Who knew? Well, a lot of people knew. We were instantly corrected. So, apologies from Mr. Dilk and I, who both agreed that he had passed for some reason, even though if I had taken a moment and done the math, it's certainly completely feasible that Joe Brown could be alive. 
And also Joe Brown wasn't the hard partying guy. He was the guy recording it. And a lot of times the guys like Joe Brown who are recording in age aren't the ones who are raging. Because the ones who are raging, not only don't they last long enough to record in age, but also they're often narcissists who can't think outside of themselves anyway. So once again, our heartfelt apologies to Mr. Brown from Steve Dilk and I. And if you're listening, sir, please come on the show. And this really goes out to his fans, his fellow climbers there in the UK, and anybody else who uh, doesn't like it when living people are declared dead. I'd blame it on the whiskey, but I don't think it's deep enough in the show for that to be accountable. It's all on us. Okay, quick piece of business. Hope to see you at the Michigan Ice Fest coming up 13th to the 17th, 18th, something like that, that weekend in February. Go. See you there. Okay, let's get to Peter Doucette. Here's the thing about Peter's interview. No matter how much I pressed him to talk about what kind of badass he was, he did not. He avoided. He ducked. He parried. Which is, of course, the way of the Northeast, North Conway, New Hampshire climber. Don't spray about yourself. Just get it done. And Peter has gotten it done. He's got gnarly alpine roots in Alaska. He's got gnarly mixed roots all over the Northeast. Been at the top of big stuff in South America, Europe, all over the place. So as you're lulled by that baritone, remember, inside there is a soul of a master, a guy who scrapes his way up things that would turn your insides to jelly, frozen jelly, that's been sitting in the back of the fridge for a while. Anyhow, that's the way things went with this one. We talk a bunch about his beginnings in New Hampshire. We talk a bunch about the scene up there, and we talk a bunch about guiding, which I haven't really touched on that much on the Enormicast. So I hope you dig it. Man of the mountains, this guy, Peter Doucette. start with this our impression as westerners mm-hmm. first of all our impression is that we live in the you know the true paradise of rock climbing um and and ice and everything actually climbing in general um our impression but seriously though our impression my impression over the years of of the of new england climbing one of the things is it seems very tight-lipped about sort of um or the tradition is not to you know, talk too much about your climbing, so to speak, not to spray, have the spray yeah. on up here. Yeah, it I seems like there's a lot of tradition up here that's that's sort of lasted longer against um, certain practices. Yeah. Maybe it's not happening still, but no, I think that's, held out. That's definitely the case. And, I mean, North Conway in particular, thing people have climbed on Cathedral and Whitehorse and um, outside of Conway just Franconian Arch and Cannon Cliffs. The feeling I think is that people have pushed grades and themselves and done it in conditions that were, you know, some some days are fantastic and some days are really <laughs> ugly from a friction or comfort perspective. You know, um, the the changing conditions and just some seasons being better than others and. You know, just some cliffs kind of get people get excited and start showing up more routinely to kind of more off the beaten path sites. And you know, when people are developing things and maybe they're a little more tight lipped, and then it kind of gets out, or somebody else just goes thrashing around in the same area and sees there's you know, there's been a little bit of moss cleaned off somewhere, and the rock actually doesn't look too bad, and um, start to ask questions. And I, th- I think the information gets out there, but it's not like you're gonna just do a google search and come up with like the the little gems that are um you know still kind of being discovered and and ferreted out a little bit Mm -hmm. and uh and that's part of the fun of it i mean we don't have the massive scale uh but there's a volume of pretty good rock and once you get to know the area and know 
where to go when and um, why things are going to be good in certain seasons or not you know um, that goes a long ways towards having a lot of really good climbing days um, even when maybe conditions aren't ideal right kind of play the game a little bit right, yeah right. so what's yeah. your background climbing up here uh, I, I grew up just hiking the 4,000 footers of New Hampshire. There's 48 of them, my dad. And then in high school, I went to the White Mountain School, which is uh, it's a boarding school, but there are day students. And I was a day student on a scholarship there and uh, was fortunate enough to have some good mentorship in the climbing world there. I started roped climbing like my sophomore year and put together a trip with um, six other students and three faculty who uh, were super gung-ho, pretty young, energetic faculty, Mark Vermeil, Chris Marks, um, Chris Quinn. And it was, yeah, six students, and we got in a van. We had a van donated, and we drove around the West for five weeks, um, my junior summer. And we went to the Tetons and climbed the Grand in a day and went to Eldo, went to Devil's Tower, we drove up to climb the Bugaboos, but the cane hut had been avalanche, so we didn't go to the Bugaboos. We climbed at Lake Louise. And, uh, yeah, kind of just did this big 5,000-mile loop. Where, what year was that? And, uh, that was About. 97. That's unreal. That was pretty unbelievable. And it, it was called the, um, it was the Classic Climbs Challenge, and we are going to try and do... 10 of the classic climbs in Steve Roper's book was like the, the plan. Uh -huh. And I think we got to like maybe three or four of them, but we did a lot of climbing around those right. classics and just getting used to, you know, being up at elevation and seeing how Western rock felt and jamming different cracks and, uh, you know, climbing some in the mountains and some like in Eldo. I remember being on power and um, st um, Bastille crack and stuff like that. And um, the program was really strong. There were folks early on who were totally comfortable with putting students on the sharp end once they'd done their homework and lots of stories at the school of people catching lead falls and practicing. There was a log, but before my time, there was a log that was up in the tree. And if you could catch the log, then you could be a, a lead belayer. Right. That sounds and, like um, the old school, like Sierra Club. Yeah. It was right. like that kind of mentality. Originally, and, I um, probably, you probably had to do it on a hip belayer. Yeah, it, yeah right. it totally was. Not, not in my time, but and they had yeah. like, they would wear the, he had, the you had to break at least like three or four ribs and then you were, right. you know, it <laughs> you was okay. You were in, <laughs> if you could hold a fall after you you broke some ribs and you're, you're good but i i kind of came in after that period but uh yeah, yeah there was a, a, a history yeah. yeah a history there of and the access is so good so that, i mean the thing about the northeast is you're not going to spend unless you want to much time in the car getting to the cliff mm -hmm. it's like you want to go put in a half day you can get some real climbing done in in a few hours and uh and not necessarily sport stuff a lot of it's like trad too so, right um it's kind of unique from from some other venues that must sure. have, i mean i can all i just that sounds like an amazing so it was in conjunction with the school yeah i mean so spring guys, and fall so like it was sort of official yeah it was like spring and fall we'd have like four days a week mm -hmm. um, oh i'm talking about this trip this oh the trip. trip yeah the trip was um that just happened once it was like yeah. a one-time but deal. it was like the it stars was aligned part of this i mean you guys were sort of under the umbrella of the yeah it was the faculty and the students right. like there were everybody was super psyched and we're like well we're having a good spring climbing season and fall and then um i think the instructors mark Vermeil and chris marks and and uh chris quinn just kind of had this vision of like well maybe we should just try and go out west next mm -hmm. summer and yeah car dealership like donated a van which we we stripped the seats out of the back we had, we had it was nine of us but there were only like I think there were only eight seat belts. So there was right. always like space in the back to kind of lounge out and stuff on the roof. Mm -hmm. And yeah, we just like drove across country in the middle of the night and yeah, started like, climbing. I mean, it seems like you would, uh, if you could somehow have connected it to the school, I mean, it seems like if you six kids 
I suppose you couldn't even drive yet anyway. Or, no. No, you could we, Well. But I'm just saying, like, we certainly you, weren't driving the van. But if six-year six bros, you and five-year bros got together and said to your, all your parents, like, we're going on this Yeah, trip it cost, I think it was $200. Yeah. We raised all the money. Yeah. We paid, like, 200 bucks. But they would have said no way. But then you'd throw these faculty in, and you got, like, a, <laughs> yeah. sort of an umbrella of the school. They'd be like, okay, yeah, it yeah. sounds great. Yeah. You know what I mean? I can't uh, imagine. Was, Maybe they would have let me go, my parents. Yeah, I think it was, it was yeah. bold on the faculty's part right. for sure and i mean they didn't get paid for it they were no. just like that's let's cool. go do this and we stayed at the climbers ranch in the tetons for pretty good i don't know maybe a week of the trip and mm -hmm. just camped a lot out of the van and just kind of followed some decent weather here and there and you know you know we'd maybe get in one of the classics and be like all right now let's go check out somewhere else mm -hmm. we had a rough itinerary kind of changed as as things unfolded and yeah, it was it was pretty pretty cool, pretty unique early. Yeah, that and it, I mean, and climbing in the Tetons, I think for me early on got me pretty psyched on the possibility, like that you could actually get out west and do it. It wasn't just reading about it and mm -hmm. wondering how big and bad and wild those places were, but you could actually go explore that. And um, that kind of led into my senior project for the school, which is like the last half a semester I went and took a Knowles instructor course hadn't taken a Knowles course but went and took a Knowles instructor course and then started work with Knowles having graduated high school that summer in mountaineering um, courses in the Wind River range which was pretty unique and I was younger than most of the folks on the course and super intimidated and um, you know I, my yeah my climbing skills were reasonable for that kind of instruction but the the like social dynamic the leadership and communication and everything i was um, pretty shy in the group setting i think people i didn't know coming from a relatively small school and small town before that um but it was yeah climbing was kind of like something i knew well enough that i was confident enough to go into a different circle and and at least interact and engage and feel like i had um, more to offer, I guess, mm -hmm. people. So. Do you think, or do you know, um, if uh, your cohort on the on the Great Western trip went on to keep climbing in the world, or uh, I mean, yeah, there are people like I know. I, I've kept track. Half of those guys I know pretty well. What's okay. going on? Like my friend Zach Alberts is over in Gap, France. He married a French woman, and he's just climbing super hard. He always climbed super right, hard right, very yeah. easily. Yeah, where Seyu says. Yeah, yeah. And um, my friend Elliot is in Australia, and he's um, he does a lot of mountain biking, but he climbed a bunch in mm -hmm. in Australia. And then other folks, guys running an adaptive ski program up in Maine, and uh, yeah, Boris and Matt. I don't know where those guys have landed up. Yeah, landed, but you, yeah, you know, it, just... it was a pretty. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm still I still climb with some of those faculty like once or twice a year, and mm -hmm. uh, Mark Vermeil, who ran the outdoor program, I climbed with him in the Dolomites and started my guide service with him. Now that um, I run um, solely, but um, we were partners in that business in this business for for a while. So yeah, I mean, it's it's that's pretty cool, you know, and and pretty had to be looked upon now as like a pretty important trip for you, you absolutely know, sort of stuff and making those relationships yeah um, i still i think about it i mean i worked in the tetons for exum for six summer seasons four full seasons and a couple partial seasons and yeah i mean first time up the grand was was back when i was either 16 or 17 yeah it's just like kind of kind of wild to think about progression and going from being you know just kind of awestruck by the scale of the place and how it felt and wondering what was around the corner to spending that much time and getting to know the range, at least in the summer, um, really well. So, and, that, and you're right. Like it's a big chance to take on the, I mean, the, the liability alone, yeah. thinking yeah. about that is like, I mean, <laughs> yeah. you know, you don't always think about that and you just kind of cross your fingers, but I mean, even yeah. pulling seats out and no seatbelts is like a no, it was like there, there were seatbelts but not for everyone all the time right, that right. was the thing it's like and yeah we, we did stuff we were driving through the middle of the night and i remember like somebody filled up the gas and drivers switched but nobody took the gas nozzle out of the car so we drove away and like yanked the head off the gas nozzle at like three in the morning and like 
Iowa or something. And we, <laughs> we thought the trip was basically over right, right. there. It was just gas. And they're trying to put the head back on it without going in to talk to the, the, the instructors are trying to put the head back on the, the gas pump while we're all watching like half awake in the van. And, and, uh, there's like some ball valve. So every time you push on it, gas would like spray everywhere. Oh it was like, you know, so the, the van smelled like gas for a while until it smelled like something else. But where were you, where'd you actually grow up? This was boring. Uh, I grew up in Whitefield, New Hampshire, which okay. is like maybe, I don't even know, maybe three, 2,500, 3,000 people. Right. So and, uh, like my your... dad worked in a nearby town, Littleton and worked as a, in a publishing printing company basically mm-hmm. and he worked there for like 40 years and I went to public school through eighth grade um, and then there were three scholarships to get, get day students into uh, you know some of the local community involved in the in the school this the White Mountain School which was largely a boarding school mm-hmm. population it's old ski school and um, there was like there's a period of like kind of crazy through the 70s it was like there was all sorts of stories about just like drugs and skiing and like just kind of free-for-all boarding school and then just before I got there Mickey Landry new headmaster came in and he was like by the book super strict first offense and he was like he kicked out like a quarter of the school like four years in a row and then there was like no drug problem (laughs) and everybody was like all right I guess this is a different scene now and so in a school of like, you know, 80 to 100 people at the time, and there were 20-day students, and we were all pretty close, and uh, lots of skiing at Cannon Mountain, and kind of, it was kind of the best of both worlds, because you could, you could go home and do your own thing, and, and then you could go to school, and you had pretty young, psyched faculty, both for the classroom time and, you know, boarding schools everybody wears all the hats so it's like they're teaching sports and they're doing dorm duty and they're running the outdoor program so with uh with orientations and after school activities and formal dinners and you name it everybody's kind of seeing each other all the time and it just was a different kind of academic experience than i would have had in the kind of regional high school yeah so did you have a sense of I mean, what was your sense of it at the time? Were you sort of a, I didn't a want to thought, go at first. Okay, I was yeah. playing all sorts of team sports and having a good time with that and had my friends that were all going to the regional high school. And I think like way back, my mom had some contact either working for the admissions at White Mountain School or something. So she knew of the school and um, she was like, we should really, you know, look into this. It's a good opportunity. And I was like, well. And they kind of direct, they mm-hmm. like moved me that direction. And I didn't really know enough like to say no or yes. I was just like, okay, it seems like the right move to try anyway. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty formative, like short and long term. I mean, clearly like, like yeah. who knows? I mean, would you ever sort of muse on the other path? Like if, cause had you climbed no. it all by then? No, I'd never roped up. No, right. lots of lots like of hiking. The hiking yeah. yeah, I mean, um, I'll grow. I'd yeah, I'd hiked since I was a little kid. Lots of fishing and just cruising right. around in the woods um, with my dad. Like especially. more sort of traditional. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Outdoor and stuff. we grew up on a we had a small we had a camp on a lake that my parents winterized. So it was kind of like living at summer camp for a good. You know, summers were just like spent in the lake on the lake in boats, mm-hmm. like paddling around, fishing. You name it, but. But yeah, it was a pretty big um, change in direction. I always like did well academically, but it was also it. it f- I was just I had so much fun when I was out with people, both who I really looked up to um, in the instruction role, but also like friends who were learning kind of the same stuff at the mm-hmm. same time. And everybody was like, everybody kind of had their thing. Like, you know, some kids were pretty solid, like technically with like gear and anchors, and that stuff came easily. And some kids were just like boulders and like moved really well and kind of got the movement piece and built like little home walls and stuff i mean my friend zach had this like little woody in the above his garage that was all old mattresses and cats running around it was like totally heinous but it was like this little wall in the you know early 90s that he like cobbled together we we'd drill 
river stones with a drill press like underwater and build all these holds for the wall and mm -hmm. it was just kind of a my development climbing definitely paralleled or even like exceeded my development in, in other areas while I was kind of in that that phase I kind of it always just made a little bit more sense than a lot of other things to me mm -hmm. <laughs> for whatever reason it's a lot of good energy did you go to college I did yeah I went to University of Maine in Orono went to John Tierney who's uh he ran the outdoor program up there called Mainbound and he's a now a full guide he had worked through the AMGA process pretty early and ran a guide service in Acadia National Park and um was really big on mentorship and taught wilderness first responders and avalanche courses and a, you know he worked as a climbing ranger in Rocky Mountain National Park with uh, Craig Lubin for a bunch of years and then up on um, Denali for some seasons as a climbing ranger and also medic like backcountry medic and uh, yeah he just had a lot of confidence in the students that he taught and was dedicated to staff trainings and getting people's skills where he felt they needed to be to be in a leadership role and then he just kind of turn you loose and <laughs> you'd, you'd work through a progression uh, as a student leader um, assistant leader and course leader um, but you kind of owned it like there was a mix of students at the university and just lo local people who wanted to go out and climb or ski or go up Katahdin and um, or go to Acadia for that matter and uh, we just ran courses like all through the school year almost every weekend and um, yeah he he just kind of <laughs> cracked the whip when he felt like he needed to and he'd step back and let us roll with these programs and we kind of got into that pattern of running a course, kind of checking in with him, debriefing with co-instructors and getting feedback from students and then kind of roll that into the, the next one. And he, he ran credit rock climbing programs and um, wilderness med programs through the university uh, and also ran private guiding um, service through the summers. So after I wrapped up working at Knowles, which was, I did three summers working for Knowles. I started working for him in Acadia. I think I worked for him for three summers there. And that was just kind of introduction to private guiding in a national park and um, pretty much rock climbing uh, with Acadia mountain guides. But then winters were on, on Katahdin doing kind of backcountry ice courses and bigger bigger eastern ascents i guess uh -huh. remote certainly it takes it's like a 15 mile ski to get in there and um you're usually it's usually like five days to a week sort mm -hmm. of trips that you run back there and you uh, you said you were like good at rock climbing you were good at climbing rather it made sense to you yeah what drew you then i wasn't actually that teaching? good at it but it did kind of make sense to me oh, okay. i knew i knew what i needed to do to get better or feel better uh -huh. in that that yeah so you knew what yeah. you but but anyway so, but then all of a sudden you 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 like i mean not all of a sudden but you know i was i was the same way in a sense i didn't start till college mm -hmm. you know and i was like this is awesome makes sense to me i really like it yeah but i'm gonna go and do it for myself i mean i started guiding a little bit ways after but i wasn't as dedicated as you were to this idea of of teaching it and what do you think accounts for that the value i found in really good instruction made me want to be able to give that to someone else i think like i felt so confident in like the people that i was in the mountains with who were skilled and had experience that i wanted and backgrounds that i you know was um, kind of fascinated by in terms of how did this person get as good and competent and confident in these skills and situations as they appear? And, you know, what's the, what's the route to, to that kind of comfort in, in bigger mountains in mm -hmm. more complex mm -hmm. situations, like, uh, being respond like to have your own skills dialed enough to be able to manage somebody else's needs and and kind of goals um, beyond yourself which seems just just intriguing and like a worthy worthy goal just is the the people as much as the material but they kind of went together pretty tightly so when did you start uh 
you know, it sounded like it was pretty heavily local at that point. Um, yeah. But, and but maybe in there, it was, I mean, in the, the Tetons and your, your trip out there, but. When? Yeah, ju- was it junior in college? I went to Vancouver. I did a year abroad, <laughs> abroad in Canada, uh-huh. went to Vancouver, British Columbia, and um, climbed in Squamish a bunch, and went to the Canadian Rockies. And you were a few miles from the border. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> back and forth across, exactly. <laughs> back and forth from Seattle, I'd fly to Seattle and then drive across. And yeah, we well, when I went to school out there, I actually drove. But I came back for Christmas break. Yeah, nevertheless, yeah, yeah it was uh, <laughs> not really too far afield from a from a cultural <laughs> they perspective. Say a. a, yeah, they love the license plate. The live free or die really got a lot of attention oh, really? in Vancouver. They're like, "Is that real?" I'm like, "Oh, it's yeah. pretty real." Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's the real deal. But um, yeah, I, it was definitely northeast focused and. Even still, like, I've spent most of my winters in the Northeast, and, and uh, I really appreciate the, the ice climbing and the conditions that, that make it really interesting here to, to kind of follow the season. And, and um, yeah, and family's here, lots of mm-hmm. friends, that mm-hmm. sort of thing. And you've climbed, um, I know you've climbed in Alaska. Mm-hmm. Have you climbed um, other sort of great ranges? Um, climbed in Patagonia okay. a bit, climbed, um, Fitzroy with, uh, Micah and, and Gilbert, um, Super Canaletta and, uh, Saratore with Adam George, the West Face, the Ragney route. Mm-hmm. And, uh, another trip to, we got on the North Pillar and climbed the North Pillar to the top. But, um, Europe, the Alps a bit and just kind of. You know, a lot of a lot of shorter trips, I guess, to Europe, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and uh, went to China briefly with Craig Lubin and John Tierney, and climbed some ice over there uh, while I was still in college. Uh, right after nine eleven, the I remember plane tickets were super cheap, and Craig had been over there a bunch and had explored this valley and had some good contacts over there. So we flew over for three weeks in, in January and climbed some new ice routes over there that he'd kind of he knew about but hadn't hadn't been on him yet so uh-huh. that was that was a good introduction to a place that felt pretty foreign um yeah ecuador i guess early on i guided in ecuador for, right with right. john tyranny's a bunch of volcanoes yeah so it's, you've gotten around yeah, l- yeah. O- over time yeah micah micah introduced me to africa pretty much mm-hmm. time in ethiopia and namibia and mozambique briefly yeah, yeah. but you've like you've stayed here yeah, I live I live here. I mean, work has been a big part of that. I it's in the last few years become less seasonal and more like I feel like I can make decisions and arrange a schedule that that feels good. Um I mean, I basically I guide privately for my own business, Mountain Sense. I work with the US military and train special teams, which are primarily um Air Force pararescue guys who are combat medics. And we do a lot of cold weather training with them and high angle weather or high angle rescue training. Um, and I work with a guy, Alon Camo, who's done that sort of training now for uh, 19 or 20 years and um, worked with those guys for that time um, and kind of developed a curriculum that suits their, their needs in the field for a whole bunch of different mountain operations. And, um, and I train guides for the AMGA. I, I instruct for the AMGA and examine now. So, so yeah, it's like I mean that's full time making. Yeah, it's guiding, it's as much right? as I can kind of swing, especially right. the family and everything now. So. Yeah, yeah. So um, let let's sort of talk about a little bit about your personal climbing um, and how that evolved and and what your sort of your uh, where your interests lie with that. I mean, you you seem to be in my sort of talking to you most interested in ice climbing um would that be a safe bet or is it just a matter of the fact that it's winter right now and you're um uh, i i appreciate variety yeah. in my climbing um i've i feel most comfortable if you're just to look across the grades of difficulty mm-hmm. i'm more comfortable on difficult ice and mixed routes generally speaking than i am on difficult rock routes why it's um, a good question uh, <laughs> probably uh it feels like it's a little different every time and there's not so much an expectancy of like the route's going to be a certain way. You can Mm -hmm. kind of make decisions around 
what you see and because you think, well, maybe this is a little different than last time, you kind of let go of that expectation of, you know, I'm going to find this hold here and it's going to feel like this and I'm going to rest there and the ice is going to be good. It's, it's more of a reacting to what's in front of you than living in what it was last time or what you thought it you know might be you can mm-hmm. you can wish it were different <laughs> you know but it's just gonna be what it is on that particular day and and what you bring to it if you're creative you know you might not climb the exact way that you climbed it last time or you will next time but i kind of uh appreciate the the possibility of just i mean i don't mind thrashing around ice climbing either too it's like you start thrashing around rock climbing I don't know. It just seems like you're either on the route or you're not. Right. And mixed climbing, you know, there's a little more variation that seems to fit within the... So, like, the improvisation maybe is something that you... Comes a little more you, easily, right, maybe, that you, I think. You in, are set up for whatever mentally or Yeah, I guess so. I, I mean, I... I'm making you think about this thing that maybe... Right. Like, just no, I, I do. Th- I think about it, but it's also like an because you know you're you're out of my realm thing. right now. I'm trying right. to tell you. <laughs> yeah, um, it's a good question. Uh, yeah, I it, it's been the case for a very long time that mm-hmm. I've felt more comfortable on ice and mixed ground. Than, um, what about than the hard rock? I guess. What about the risk? Do you do you think there's? Are you an ice climber that you know either denies or just wishes? to believe it's le- it's just as normal and risky as rock climbing or do you understand maybe a um, mental I part probably, of it that you can deal with risk I probably to a degree deny that it's wildly different okay. from rock climbing risk um, perhaps different than sport climbing risk right. I would agree to that but for us like around here 90% of the routes are traditionally protected either ice screws or gear that you're placing in the rock and and, um, you know, the reality of that gear is that, yeah, some of it's good and some of it's rubbish, but you usually know when you're placing it, which, which, which is which, it's like most of the time you do. Um, and if you're not sure, you just try and place more or you mm-hmm. make a different plan. I mean, my view of risk is changing, like with parenthood and like like in in many of the ways people are like oh yeah you might feel different about that when you've you know got kids or mm-hmm. whatever but the confusing piece of that for me is that um, the kids and um, this like long-term knee injury that I didn't really know I had with um, a torn meniscus kind of came at the same time so it was like I'd knock on wood I'd never really been hurt or injured or laid up in in my adult life for climbing or any other reason and then, like, you got kids two. and torn meniscus, like, instantly. Yep. You got two injuries at once. Yeah. <laughs> that would be, be another way to, to look at it. It's certainly game changer on two two. Maybe fronts. three injuries yeah, in your exactly, case. the twins. So, you know, that, it does, it, you know, it's a different headspace when you're not, when you're used to being able to use your body and trust it and, uh, and when it's tied to your work and income and your family's responsibilities, it's even a, a deeper kind of uh, questioning that you go through and you're kind of laid up and you're like, well, I'm not really, <laughs> I don't have like the steady income stream or, or way to it that I'm used, that I'm used to. And, mm-hmm. you know, then, you know, somebody tells you it's going to take a year to get back to feeling normal again. If, if you do, if the, you know, they did a repair instead of a, normal meniscus surgery which is just take out the piece that's torn and then you deal with less cartilage in your knee but um yeah so there was a lot of kind of shift in just the reality of like wow being being hurt especially like really hurt is uh is a different place to operate from and it I don't know. I, I don't know if it's it's changed a few things in the field for me, but in reality, I've kind of always sought out the best information and good practices and tried to stay safe and and not been afraid to either back off or leave gear, do what I need to do to kind of maintain what I feel is reasonable uh, level of risk. That's the thing. Every day you show up, whether you're climbing for yourself or or guiding there's there are things that are outside your control right that's that's a lot of days if you're thinking you know you're climbing 250 or 
280 days a year. Yeah, that's a lot of time yeah. under the, you know, the or in the uh, playing the odds in a way like yeah. out there. But yeah, I mean, a, a guiding year for me, it's like between 170 and recently, like between 170 and 200, 210 days a year is what I've done. Working. Working. Um, and, and then you throw personal climbing and in there. And then there's a lot of personal climbing in there too. Right. So yeah, it's a lot of days. That's a lot of days. So going with the, with the guiding, I, I, I'm not sure I've ever had a like working, especially, I don't know, I've never met anyone that I think guides on that schedule, but yeah, I'm sure I, mean, I have. But, the schedule's getting yeah, better. Yeah, it's not like just right. plugging in for a season at a time right. anymore, but, but um, it is a lot of work. As a guide, and, and I should one day do a show just on guiding, and people have asked me to do that, um, <laughs> but I, I've always felt like I have to find the right person because, um, you know, there's the, there's the face of guiding right. that you present to the public and to your clients and everything else, and then there's the the you know sitting in where well, where we were was the guide shack at yeah cms yeah at night I've heard and, stories yeah yeah i've been in a more modern version right, of it but right. i haven't lived in it That's but uh you know and then there's the conversations you're having amongst yourselves and those two things can be very different um but i'm not going to put you on the spot because you're a working professional <laughs> um but you know what i'm talking yeah about. yeah yeah um but i a question i have is that I think there's a lot of misconceptions about what it is, but also like if you could somehow, and this might not, this question might not work. So let me yeah. ask it anyway, but if you could somehow inform every client, student, whoever, a few things that they should know before they show up to any guide. And before they you, hire a guide. Yeah. They... What, what is it that you think that, you know, everybody needs to know or should know in terms of what that experience is probably going to be like or what you would like them, how they'd like, you'd like them to act or if there, there could be like a corrective thing here. A corrective thing in terms of finding a guide that... No, in terms of how they, re, how they interact with you. If I could make it perfect, I'd encourage people to like set aside enough time that there's, there's, there isn't a time pressure mm -hmm. and to do it in a place that has... Uh, a broad enough range of offerings that they're not going to be like overwhelmed or too objectively focused, like on a specific peak or thing mm -hmm. so that they actually can climb with someone that they trust and can actually hear the feedback that they're receiving contribute to the conversation as far as what's fun and what's not, mm -hmm. and then go launch on something that, they're inspired by they want to do i think that you know that's it's too easy to just say you know i want to go to the top of that or i want to go go you know take the wild photo or you know i, I feel like everybody's going to find a different value in climbing some people it's the movement some people it's like overcoming obstacles sometimes it's like being a little afraid and and continuing um but let like let themselves figure out what climbing is to them and not what they think it is because mm -hmm. i mean their climbing is a lot of different things to different people and like the clients i've worked with over the longest period of time it's like we've started in a really different place than we are now as far as what our days are like and what we're trying to do and and you know we have a, we have a good time but it doesn't feel like it's like i have to show you that i'm I'm a good guide or you have to like show up and do, you know, 110% and like crush yourself energetically. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, what, what do we want to do? Like what's a reasonable path to that? Not like how do we make that happen tomorrow necessarily kind of be into the process of climbing in a way that that's like, yeah, enjoyable more than like being overwhelmed. I right. Guess. Right. I feel like a lot of clients end up in this kind of over, they're either overwhelmed or underwhelmed. <laughs> if, they can, if they can find like the middle ground, right. if they have that right kind of um, connection with the guide and the, the experience, the geography, the place, like that's, that's the whole package. Sometimes things come together really well for, but I haven't, I haven't thought of myself as like demanding clients to show up in a certain way. It's mostly like, 
rested, healthy, right. psyched to be in the place we're going. And that's, that's, that's the easy part of my job. Honestly, I'm out with people who want to be there. Mm-hmm. Like for some people, it's like the highlights of their year to be in the place doing the thing that they've been thinking about for mm-hmm. weeks or months or years. And, um, yeah, I mean, that's usually the, the easiest part is like taking somebody who's already psyched to go do what you're doing and then, you know, trying to put the pieces in place to make it happen. Right. And again, without like, without putting yourself on the, on the block here, like what, is there any like super annoying habits that clients bring to the table? <laughs> super annoying <laughs> habits. The thing, one of the things that bug me is the, is the value, the people who are like, you know, because I work for school now, you, you probably deal with the financial end of it much more than I did, but I worked mm-hmm. for a school, you know, it's like all that happened in the office yeah. and I turned up, you know, I had a, even sometimes a vague notion of what you even paid. Yeah. And then there was every once in a while that client that like, you know, was like, this was costing me a lot of money. Like, and you could just feel them like wanting that's more the value, value yeah. out of it, right? Like show me the value, show me why I paid yeah. whatever. And it's, this isn't, I'm not getting what I, you know, it's like, that was always one. I was just like, Oh, these people like, let it go. Yeah. It's gone. You, 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 I think run your credit card. Already, <laughs> you know? it's like, I mean, I get it if I'm doing a terrible yeah. job, but you know, yeah. you're like giving them what you're supposed to give them. And it's like not enough or whatever, you know? I think that a critical thing for me is just realizing when information is given about anything, about how you put on your crampons about how you pack your pack or, you know, the, the things that are going to set the team up to move. Well, if those are just totally overlooked as like just general information that doesn't matter, that's really hard. Cause it's like, well, I need you to trust that I'm giving you good information, not just like the spray down of everything that could possibly happen, but I need you to trust like you hired me to make some of these decisions for you and to make risk management certainly, but also like just to make it more fun and comfortable. And if you then choose either not to listen to those recommendations or, um, do the, you know, your attention is just totally elsewhere. (laughs) It's like, it's just not moving in the same direction basically as, as you want to be moving. So, you know, certain, certain professions. I mean, working at Exum was kind of like the highest volume of like new clients all the time for me. Mm -hmm. And, um, it's often like, we want to go climb the grand and what do we have to do to like go climb the grand? And you know, the grand's a very obvious, beautiful, cool objective. And, um, if, if they show up and they're just in their daily life, they're used to like giving information because they're usually professionals too. They're usually smart, high functioning, like people who can, um, you know, who are very good at their, their jobs and their professional life. They aren't always used to listening to feedback and integrating into what they're doing. Sometimes Mm -hmm. I think a lot of professionals will get information, but then they're just going to make their own decision. Mm -hmm. And in an environment like the mountains where they can gather a certain amount of information, but, uh, you know, it may not be as pertinent to that particular day or, um, or outing as, <laughs> as they might think, just like ramrodding that idea that this is how it's going to be because I, I read about it or I, right. you know, I heard this, that, that can be a challenge to kind of balance the, the expectation that wasn't super mm-hmm. either well-founded or, or collaborated on. You know, coursework, there's one thing, right? where you're, you're, you know, someone signed up specifically, we've got five days and right. curriculum curriculum, and you want to learn how to right. get to here. And, and then there's objective guiding, not yeah. objective, but a, a guiding for an objective right. like the grand. Yeah. And I feel like those, that's where you tend, I mean, you get, I mean, very highly paid, successful dudes, a lot of times, you know, doctor, yeah. lawyer, all that sort of thing. And yeah, they're not used to being told what to do. Right. They tell people what to do yeah, and they exactly. have for 35 years. Yeah. You know, <laughs> unquestioningly, yeah. like people don't question them. Right. Yeah. And so it's yeah, like, when you're talking about that's that, that's what I'm talking like, about. It's like, I know, yeah. I know who you're talking yeah. about because they come in and 
Yeah. It's like, yeah, I mean, weather, yeah. weather can yeah. be a factor. Time, you yeah. know, they have a certain amount of time they got to get things in, and you know, yeah. the mountains so. aren't on that program. You know. So, what's your advice? Um, I asked a question of you earlier, like, why did you get drawn into instructing and guiding? Because, you know, I think it's a really common thing for climbers, young climbers or whatever, who are who are in a place, a decision making place of like, what does their financial future look like? Right. And they're weighing that with climbing time. They think to themselves, you know, I'm going to be a guy. I'm going to be a guy because I get to climb the, the time. time. Right. So, right. with you know, not necessarily addressing those people, but let's say let's address the person that is thinking about it and has a serious interest in it. Is there like, and I'm you know, as someone who's probably had other guides working for him. Maybe I don't no, know. No, not much, really. No, I've worked with a lot of yeah, worked guys. with <laughs> worked groups. Yeah, and there's those guys. What What's your like maybe spiel or piece of advice when someone's yeah, I want, I think I want to get into guiding, you know, and you're like, well, think about these things yeah. before you make that decision. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's definitely a lifestyle choice, and that guiding to climb more is not shouldn't be the foundation i guess (laughs) um i yeah i totally agree a lot of people get into guiding because they think it's going to mean more climbing and then i would say well you know why are you climbing if you're climbing to spend more time in the mountains and understand conditions and weather and felt like basic wilderness medicine or you're interested in snowpack and you just need to like log hours in the backcountry and you enjoy that like you want to explore places like be in really beautiful places and have you know a lot of time to develop relationships with people in those environments then i think those are really good reasons to get into guiding but you're not going to climb harder you're not going to climb more Um, you're not going to be better rested for your own climbing um, as a guide you might be more fit i think that if you guide some and then kind of rest like you develop a cardio base from like lots of trips sure like that kind of <laughs> low level output for many hours definitely like builds endurance yeah. right like you can keep the focus for a long time but if you're trying to pull harder on smaller holds i don't think that's the way to go <laughs> based on personal based experience. on personal experience we always joked about being like the t-rex and the tetons at the end of the summer you get these little tiny arms and these huge legs and you just claw at whatever you're trying to climb you just push your way up with your legs there's no yeah It's a a slippery slope of maintaining versus improving. Right. Well, you've, you know, you're, you're probably will lament whatever weaknesses you have in terms of that. But at the same time, you're obviously an super accomplished climbing climber and your personal climbing. So what have you found any sort of tricks to at least, you know, uh, uh, mitigate the, the problem of not enough personal climbing time versus, you know, being tired from to, 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 I mean, what have you, I don't know if they're, are are there tricks? You're just like, there's, I mean, throw in the towel. You have to put in, you have to put in a lot of, because if if you can get to a place in your guiding where you can plan your schedule months in advance, like six months or a year in advance, Mm -hmm. then you can start to build a schedule that supports certain amount of rest, certain amount of training and certain types of guiding, but you have to be well-rounded as a guide to be able to guide people in different places, different environments at the right time to then set yourself up to either be in those places, Mm -hmm. fit, healthy to go do personal objectives. Like, you know, the idea of like tagging a personal trip on after some guiding, after you're acclimated somewhere that goes on a lot or to go to a place early and get some climbing in before you meet clients and, and get, you know, get some climbing in for yourself. That, that works. Like if you can live that lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And I think that there are certain points I see in people's climbing, personal climbing progression that fits the guiding lifestyle really well. But to take that into adulthood with other things you might want besides climbing down the road is a really challenging balance to strike because if you don't do the road trips when 
you can live on a shoestring budget. You don't go to all these places when you can just like take months to drive there and weather some, you know, weather, weather some weather, get through that time and kind of just live off like off the grid kind of on your own program. If you don't do that by the time you are married, have a house, have other responsibilities, it's a lot harder to go back to that place to get that foundational experience mm-hmm. to come across as a as a competent, well-rounded guy. There are people who've done it and who've worked really hard to do it, certainly, but to come to guiding later in your life is a harder thing to do, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, because of those those things it's like you just you can't go from <laughs> living like living in a house having you know gone to school and then just decide all right i'm, I'm gonna start guiding now because you can't just get in the car and drive and go hang out with friends who are on the same have the same amount of free time and right it's almost like certain development in an ideal world happens at certain times like with a peer group with a um you know, just like you're, I don't know, as you mature or whatever. Right. There's a system. So yeah, and there, it can be broken and it yeah, can be exactly. dealt with by certain people. But yeah, it's, yeah. but I, I do see that like teaching guide programs mm-hmm. that people are kind of coming back to it. I'm like, man, this is a, it's a tough place to break into like working, developing well, I, a client base, to, you know, working yeah. for other Unless people. Unless you've like, I mean, I know people who've done it because they've been so successful in another part of their life that they're kind of retiring into this this guiding thing. Right. Okay. They know they don't need the finances. And so then they do have the choice to be like, I can work this amount of time and stop. And Because a lot of times the problem, too, with guiding, at least when I was doing it, is that you didn't make any money. And it's way yeah. better now. It's way more lucrative now, I think. You know, I I think yeah, d- maybe different, you're shaking, different you're shaking areas. Head, I mean, but yeah, I, I, but nevertheless, you, I mean, you can only compare yeah. it to like what you've seen, yeah. right? I I mean, I've I've worked for a number of different guide services, and I think working for a guide service is a tough place to kind of come out ahead, right? Uh, in the long run. Well, and if you're um, older, you know, if, if you're gonna be in one area and you develop a relationship with that guide school, and you've got return clients, mm-hmm. and I think you can you can make a reasonable go at it but and you don't have kids and you don't have yeah kids, yeah it's like it's like all of a sudden you start crossing all <laughs> these things you're like no i don't, I don't think right. i want to do that and you kind of convince yourself yeah I, I don't want that or i don't need that but then you know some things kind of kind of make sense and you do find out like oh like having a place to come home to that i don't have to like move out of or into or run to a storage unit every few months like that's pretty nice. It's <laughs> something to shoot for. It turns yeah, out, for. turns out these people who are homeowners actually have some like pretty. Yeah, I used to look down on them. Yeah, oh, you're all you're all locked into that. Yeah. like I can oh, go yeah. anywhere I want. Totally. Yeah, I can <laughs> I can move just by getting into my truck and leave. Yeah. It's like okay, go ahead, goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna sit down in my, you know, nice couch and <laughs> take a hot shower. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I get it. It's um. I mean, I, I traveled around. I spent a lot of time on people's couches. And yeah. I like to return the favor when I can now when people want to come come to the Northeast and go climbing. Right, right. Yeah, so, well, that, that's cool. I mean, it, it's funny because we could, you know, go into all these sort of sacrifices but rewards. I mean, there are rewards. It's, it's you know, you, you, I mean, talking about your evolution, it's like, yeah, you kind of like, you hung on and, banged it out and it's like you've gotten it seems to me like you've gotten to this place where you have a lot of choices about um, what you yeah want to i'm, do. I'm really yeah. i'm really fortunate and like the the work with the military groups that i do is really pretty unforeseen i've been i guess i started with like my first course was in 2009 that i started working with a lot on those courses and that's been a pretty important part of making guiding a year a truly year-round like less seasonal deal um because up to that point it was very much like okay i need to be say in the tetons for for the summer like that's just going to happen that's right. a block i've got to make money then and then winter season in new hampshire okay that's like another you know eight to ten weeks of like pretty consistent work and then you know your spring and your fall you're kind of like well all right i can go i never worked on rainier or much in the northwest but like that's kind of like an, a spring scene there um, and I wasn't like ski guiding once you're, you know, 
you can go work in Europe or Canada once you have your pin, then you know you've got work that time of year. But um, and then you know falls pretty good rock climbing wherever. But there isn't obviously you know a lot of people don't take vacations through the fall. So your right. client base is like, well, I guess I should just go climbing in the fall, which. You know that, yeah. that works. It's yeah. a good idea, but um, if you're trying to work and set your own schedule and not have it like imparted on you by by other factors, then you know I, I think that's that's a challenging thing in the guiding career to have to choose the work that you do, mm-hmm. um, and it takes time to kind of figure out what's going to work for you. Since it's the government, are you like all the other government contractors where you like? You know, you charge them like eight thousand bucks for a harness. <laughs> well, yeah. I don't sell equipment to these guys. <laughs> like, these each um, carabiner is like four hundred dollars. <laughs> you know, like. <laughs> oh, there's uh, there's certainly that goes on in in the private contracting world. That you see it, you're like, what did you do, and what did, what did it cost, and you know, we're not always privy to to those numbers. But uh, I'm a subcontractor for Leading Edge Concept, okay. which is Alon's business. And uh, you know he, I get paid a daily right, right for okay. that. And he, the contracting is no joke yeah. though. Like yeah. the paperwork is insane to get that lined up. And mm-hmm. I think having not been in the military myself, it's a, it's a difficult thing to kind of enter that sphere and actually be able to land those contracts right. because a lot of people who are directing the trainings are the people at the heads of the team now. And when people get out of military often they become contractors and vent, like they kind of connect with vendors and start right you know managing where some of those contracts go as much as they can so it's it's a, probably a longer conversation and something i don't know as much right. about but it's a lot of it's a lot of uh there are a lot of political pieces and relationships that that are responsible for where those contracts go a lot of the time as much as it is supposed to go up to bid and all those pieces. Okay, last question then. Um, so the you're back here in North Conway. You're raising a family, North yeah. Conway, or we're in Jackson actually. But Jackson. The Jackson. zone, as far as the rest yeah. of the climbing world is concerned, we're still in North Conway. Um, exactly. The. Uh, <laughs> so w- what's your last kind of take on like why it is that this place? You went all these other places. You spent some time in in the the glorious West, right. where I come the prom, come from the, <laughs> the promised promise. land. Then you're back here. You guys what's can your, stay out there. Yeah, I know. Okay. What's your take? What what is it? You know, a little bit of uh, like, why this place? For me, it's it's the variety and the um, access. Like you can you can climb really good rock, you can climb really good ice and mixed climbing, and if you know the area as well, then you can do that just about any time during the year and yeah you're gonna have some some rainy days and some high humidity and bugs and everything else that people like to gripe about but ultimately the you can get in as much climbing as you want to do here you can do it from a house you can afford and like have a have a lifestyle that you know is is as much about climbing or as little as you want and it's it's right there and the the people climbing here are you know we're still developing roots there's still like cool stuff to do there's always something that you haven't done that you're like wondering about going to check out and uh it's a really excellent place to come back to and engage with a community that actually knows what it is to go climbing and they know what it is to to be home and have friends and and live (laughs) yeah all right. Well, thanks for sitting down. Absolutely. Awesome. No, it's a pleasure. Okay, folks. Thanks for listening. Peter Doucette. He's got a pretty dialed up there in North Conway. If you want to get in touch with Peter for guiding, for beta, whatever, you can go to his website, mountainsenseguides.com, and uh, drop him a line. See if he can do something for you. And don't forget, everybody, that the shop is open over at EnormaCast.com. We have a shop. We have a shop with some t-shirts, some cool homegrown t-shirts, and some hats from Peter W. Gilroy. Very exclusive hats. There's only like 150 of these in the whole world. 
So go check those out. And while you're there, whether you're spending money or not, click on the Help Out tab. See what you can do to help out the podcast, even after all these years. And of course, be careful out there, everybody. You're on the ice. You're on the snow. Remember that stuff moves. It cracks. It breaks. It slides. It's not like that warm rock that I love so much. So whether you have a rope on or not, when you're out there in the mountains, especially this time of year, don't forget to check your knot. Stay with me. (laughs) On your tombstone, it's read always in the wrong place at the wrong time. (laughs) Elbow. Yippee-ki-yay! Oh, the fuck?